0: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard got speed, john glenn roger zero g and i feel fine
1: might be out. okay i'm out how does it feel for the united states to be
2: the new record holder at last huh when that baby light
5: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 345 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, the Lunar Rover and Traverse 1. We ended last episode as the astronauts were preparing to deploy the Lunar Rover. The rover was positioned in Quadrant 1 outside Equipment Bay, in a container that was a little larger than a suitcase. Considering the size of the rover, it was almost unbelievable that it would fold up in such a compact package. It was an amazing little vehicle, but considering it cost $8 million in 1971 money, it was expected to be pretty special. Even the Earth trainer version that the astronauts used to practice in cost a million dollars. Releasing the rover was not exactly a straightforward, simple procedure. It's hard to explain the difficulty without the aid of a visual. So, I hope everyone viewed the rover deployment video I mentioned last week. Okay. This is the NASA description for moving the rover from the lunar module to the surface. Deployment of the lunar rover from the lunar module Quad 1 by astronauts was achieved with a system of pulleys and braked reels using ropes and cloth tapes. The rover was folded and stored in Quad 1, with the underside of the chassis facing out. One astronaut would climb the egress ladder on the lunar module and release the rover, which would then be slowly tilted out by the second astronaut on the ground through the use of reels and tapes. As the rover was let down from the bay, most of the deployment was automatic. The rear wheels folded out and locked in place and when they touched the ground, the front of the rover could be unfolded. The wheels deployed and the entire frame let down to the surface by pulleys. The rover components locked into place upon opening. Cabling, pins, and tripods would then be removed and the seats and footrest raised. After switching on all the electronics, the vehicle was ready to back away from the lunar module. Here are a series of clips for the first ever deployment of the lunar rover on the surface of the moon.
4: Would have liked F eight instead of F (laughs) eleven Okay, the operators look okay. Okay, I'm gonna go play on the
2: platform. Okay. Don't pull it yet.
4: No. Getting ready to deploy the lunar rover. Uh, One walking hinge was loose. It's
2: reset.
4: There's one up there on the ladder. How about this one over here, Dave? You check this
2: one. There's one
4: lanyard.
2: Yeah, it's loose. It's loose, too. Yeah. Both walking hinges were open, Joe. Roger, copy. And they're locked. looks generally parallel. And uh, take a look at the pins. Contingency samples on the platform, Joe. Roger
4: lunar rover, this four-wheeled, electric-powered vehicle, is folded up inside there. It springs open like a inner-door bed when they open it up. You must realize that this vehicle has never been tested in the moon environment, of course. Been thoroughly tested on Earth, but that's in the full gravity of Earth. This is one-sixth gravity. No air, no atmosphere. Out, they're just about okay, ready. Okay, Jim,
2: go ahead. Okay, here it comes. Released? It's released? Okay. Now, if uh, you come down, don't disturb our whole glass ball. The rover's going to come down into a uh, slight tilt to the left. But I think we'll be okay.
4: Jim, released the latch, and now... Dave Scott, we'll pull on the lanyard. We'll spring it out there, let's hope. I want to get the
2: camera too, Dave. Yeah, i so Yeah, taking this out. I just start. it takes a while to unwind. Boom, boom, boy. more. Boom, more. I like you're going to have to do the bulk of the work today.
5: At this point, the rear wheels came out and Jim fell down.
4: chassis locking mechanism from what I can gather. Uh-huh. The one that locks the thing uh, clo- open uh, from its forward hey, Jim, position. Uh, pull the rover as far out as you can,
1: away from the limb, and then pull on the front end if you could.
2: And by that, uh, we mean lift up on the front end. we Yeah, lift up on the front.
4: Copy, Joe. Get this here. I don't listen to Joe, Joe Allen, the uh, capsule communicator at the Mann Space Center in Houston. And they have a problem like this, as you were saying Wally I off. Last night, they uh, surrounded the Mission Control Center there in Houston and all of these uh, sort of test bays uh, where they flash all can get a quick answer. The uh, support team is unbelievable. That, of course, is what Al was mentioning okay. when he uh, answered the okay. question you didn't hear an answer to oh, him oh, this morning. Yeah, uh, each one of them is an expert in uh, each area, and they're called on immediately, and the answers are given. That's
2: about as far back as to be able to get yeah. you want to hold it there, I'll get in front of it. Okay, try to lift it up. Okay, I'll hold it. Okay, uh, okay my side's locked. You, you can't imagine that looks okay there. Okay. Man, really tired with the velcro. Yeah, you almost have to pull it down to force about to
4: get, get the seat up. I had to really, really dug it. Yeah, man. That's the back of the uh, seat. seat yeah. So I think that must be Jim Rowan seat there just kind of a nylon webbing on the seats I, I, I nylon would very much like a beach chair seems to me they had a typical American problem The car a little too big for the garage <laughs> that's Arthur Clark a certain royalty that thinks British they're running a little bit behind their timeline here uh, as the At a time for a sign for this mission, Scott would have been test driving a uh, lunar vehicle by now. In fact, about 10 minutes ago, he would have been doing that. Doesn't look like they're quite ready for that test drive yet. He just drives it a few feet and backs it up, stops it, sees that the brakes work, and the engines work on those little engines, uh, on those little wheels, the motors. Just a quarter horsepower. Quarter
2: like snow. Really is. It's a whole different town. Okay, looks like the uh, brakes on. Versus so I'll see if I can't help hit it.
4: There he gets in the seat.
5: Communications between the astronauts and Dr. Joseph Allen, their capsule communicator during EVAs on the lunar surface, were excellent. To the crew, it was as if Little Joe were sitting on one of those mountains talking to them. His voice seemed to bring them closer to home. The S-band radio signal suffered minimal losses going through space. It was sent from Honeysuckle Creek, Australia, their prime station. The sending antenna was a 210-foot dish. Joe gave them minute instructions to cope with each problem. Next, he said, buckle up for safety, sounding like a parent talking to a child.
2: Okay, Dave, and buckle up for safety
5: here. Good point. Irwin never liked seatbelts, but he couldn't have done without them on the rover. It had a definite pitching motion that was a cross between a bucking bronco and an old rowboat on a rough lake, up and down, up and down. Now it was time to test drive the rover. Dave drove off while Jim stayed back at the Falcon taking pictures of him with a movie camera. Or at least trying to. Unfortunately, the movie camera jammed. Soon, Dave realized he didn't have any front steering. Nevertheless, Houston ordered them to press on. Okay,
2: safety belt, front. Now uh, you sit up a lot higher, and then one uh, G, but that makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, hand controller is uh, locked. Brake side reverses down. Circuit breakers. all uh, except the aux and the nav are coming closed. Okay, Houston, you ready to copy some numbers? No. Okay. Amp hours, one zero five and one zero five. Hmm. So
4: the two batteries.
2: Amps, of course, are at zero. The uh. Okay, volts. Number one, I got about eight two, and number two is reading. 78 and 80, and the uh, motor tips are off-scale low, of course. Roger, copy. And the, only discrepancy so, and the only discrepancy so far, I don't have any bolts on number two. And uh, Houston, uh, I'll stand by for any comments you might have on that readout. Uh, Roger, Dave. I know you've rechecked your circuit breakers there. That's correct. The circuit breakers are all in. Just
4: let me know before you drive. Yeah. This concerned about the fact there's no voltage reading on the number two battery uh, would indicate the battery okay. is Dave, we're on the way. standing by yeah. for you to drive away and
2: monitor amps the amps on
4: battery two, please. They've got uh, that second battery is a, a, is okay. a standby well, okay. a redundancy they can operate. Okay, 15 volt is going to second battery. Got a DPEP. There we go. There we Three million dollars go again. Great it better, right? <laughs> Drives right out of the picture, just like it says in the script. <laughs> and any good Western has that same series. <laughs> I don't
2: have any foot steering, Joe. Doesn't
4: that what? Any foot like steering. Steer, yeah. So the you must steering. Well, you got some steering there. Yeah. Isn't?
2: Dave,
4: while you're rolling there, requesting forward steering to bus seat, bus Charlie. Okay, steering forward to bus Charlie. Still no forward steering, Joe. I the forward steering circuit breaker, please. It might be noted that the lunar rover is one of the few pieces of equipment up there that doesn't have telemetry of its own back to Earth. In other words, they can't monitor the on Earth exactly what's happening in that vehicle. They have to get it all by word of mouth and Scott. The telemetry, uh, uh we accept it no very brightly very important like for day the day, team to watch what's going on. But it's also a an item that causes a lot of extra okay. weight and does lower the reliability on a system like the rover. over. Hey Jim, I'm gonna bring her out here in the...
5: Running a little behind schedule, the astronauts were finally ready to begin Traverse 1. Here's some background info on what was planned for the first lunar rover Traverse.
4: Where they're going to go today on the first of the walks. The walks are today and on Sunday and on Monday, each for about seven hours duration. Well, where they're going to go today, Dave Schumacher is with Dr. John Salisbury of the Air Force Cambridge Research Laboratories, and they can tell us.
0: Well, Dr. Salisbury, this first walk or ride isn't as long as uh, the other two, but uh, still the scenery should be pretty good. Oh, yes, this this is uh, actually quite a long ride by previous standards. Well, any ride is a long ride by that standard. Yes, Uh, it is the shortest of the group, but the scenery will be spectacular. They'll start over here where the little limb model can be seen, moving towards the uh, rim of the great rill, Hadley Rill, past the crater Riesling here, stopping on the rim of the rill, Uh, at Canyon Crater, then going around Elbow Crater, cutting back towards uh, Flow Crater here, then over to Slide Crater here, then going back to the rim, going next to Earthlight Crater, a great great favorite of Arthur C. (laughs) Clarke's, and then back home. So they're going to see both uh, the rill and some of the Apennine foothills on this uh, first ride together then take more time later with each of the two. Curious about this uh, rill. You've said that it's a mystery. Is there anything that you can add to the mystery before we get their report? Yes, I think this is one of the most interesting features because so many different explanations have been advanced to the origin of this kind of feature. Uh, one origin that's been proposed for rills is that they're what are called graben, which are down-faulted blocks. The, some of the straight rills obviously are graben. This rill that we have in the field at uh, this time is a sinuous rill. These sinuous rills do not appear to be down drop blocks so that this explanation for Hadley rill is not one that's favored. Uh, on the right, it shows a, a dike, which is a, uh, where lava has moved up along a fracture. Uh, this also is not a popular origin for the sinuous rills. The sinuous rills are seen more often as in the bottom three blocks. Uh, fluid erosion by water or ash flows has been proposed. The gas erosion along a fracture, that's what's called a linear mar, and uh, that is a series of gas explosion craters could coalesce to produce a linear structure like a, a rill. But the most popular idea is that it's a collapsed lava tube.
5: The Traverse 1 plan would ensure the best possible use of time in case Dave and Jim had to leave the moon after the first EVA. The traverse would take them directly to the farthest point on the route first so that they would have enough supplies in their backpacks and time to walk back to the lunar module if the rover broke down. Dave picked up Jim at the front door of the lunar module. But Jim's seatbelt turned out to be too short. No one realized when the adjustments were made on Earth that at one-sixth G, the moon suit would balloon more, and it would be difficult to compress it enough to fasten the seat belt. This meant that every time Jim got out of the rover, Dave had to come around and unfasten his seat belt, and then help rebuckle Jim back in before they would take off. All buckled in, Dave and Jim took off on Traverse One, heading directly south for Hadley Reel, and the front of the Apennine Mountains, an area that was most important from a geological point of view. Okay, Joe, here we go.
3: Okay, Dave, we want uh, a heading of 203. Okay, 203, eh? Checkpoint one. Gonna miss that double anchor, but I can see that now. there. Okay, we're moving forward, Joe. Roger. Woo, hang on. And we're coming around left. Heading directly south right now to miss some craters off to our right. Very subdued craters. Okay, yeah, i gonna take a little zig here. On to our right is, uh... Hang on. Get a feel for this thing. Nine kilometers an hour, Joe. Hold hold the geology. Let's get the rover squared away first. Eight kilometers. Up a little rise. Eight turning back. 203, huh? Okay.
5: 203 for two miles. To Dave, driving the rover seemed more like flying an airplane than driving a car. Instead of a steering wheel, which would have been very difficult to grasp in their bulky suits, it was controlled with a joystick mounted on a control console between Dave and Jim's seats. Despite the maximum speed of only about 13 kilometers per hour, the reduced gravity and very irregular surface meant one or more of the independently suspended wheels lifted away from the surface every time they hit uneven terrain. No part of the lunar surface was totally flat or even. It was all rolling and irregular, with a wide variety of small and large craters, some with debris inside. Of course, the wheels were made out of woven piano wire, stretched to provide a surface like an ordinary tire. So when they hit a rock, the wheels just bowed up and absorbed the impact and sprang back again. Even with all the rocks they drove over on all three traverses, not one of those piano wires broke. Dave noticed, with only rear-wheel steering, maneuvering around the large craters and across this combination of rolling hummocks and fine-to-coarse-grained lunar soil required intense Concentration. He found that driving into the sun was the most difficult since the glare caused a washout of the surface features. Though the rover could turn on a dime and had very good traction and power, the woven piano wire wheels kicked up impressive rooster tails of dust, which were reflected by the rover's large fenders. At one point, they came over a little rise and there was a crater about 20 feet right in front of them. Dave made a quick left turn that threw the vehicle up on the two right wheels. Jim felt sure they were going to flip over. And what a disaster that would have been if the rover rolled over and pinned them underneath. Jim doubted they could even release the seat belts under those conditions. Thankfully, They never found out.
3: (laughs) Man, this is really a rock and roll ride, isn't it? Never been on a ride like this before. Oh, boy. I'm glad they got this great suspension
5: system on this thing. Boy. Dave and Jim were now heading southwest in the direction of the first destination, Elbow Crater, and the northeast flank of St. George Crater, on the lower flank of Mount Hadley Delta. Suddenly, Dave shouted, Hey, the,
3: right? the rail. There's the rail. There's the rill. Yeah. We're looking down in Down and across the rill, we can see craters on the far side of the rill. Roger,
1: like advertised.
5: As Dave and Jim gazed out from the top of the ridge, they were amazed at how huge Hadley Rill was. They could look down about a thousand feet and across to the far wall at least a mile away. Both Dave and Jim believed that Hadley Reel was a fracture in the moon's crust, but most scientists thought that the sinuous reels were volcanic in nature formed by collapsed lava tubes or the result of flows of volcanic material. Looking to the south along the edge of the reel that faced the northwest, Jim could see several large blocks that had rolled down slope three quarters of the way to the bottom and soon Jim could see the bottom itself. It was very smooth, about 200 meters wide and with two very large boulders right on the surface of the bottom. At this point, Dave wanted to drive the rover down to the bottom to sample some rocks but Jim disagreed. He was concerned that if they drove to the bottom and something happened to the rover, they would never have been able to get out. They would not have either the energy or the time to walk up that incline. They would have been completely exhausted and would have run out of oxygen. Houston agreed with Jim. Dave now continued the drive on the east rim of Elbow Crater, moving easily up the 10-degree slope.
3: Hey, that's Elbow out at our 1 o'clock position. Shoot, sure, this is Elbow right here, I believe, my friend. Yeah, this is Elbow right here. Yeah, it yeah, was large one. The one we're just trending into. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big fella, isn't it? That sure is. I don't know, uh... Take a look up here and we'll see how she looks. Maybe you can, uh, you know, angle uphill here? Yeah, there's... How are we do it on time there,
1: uh... Houston? Like gangbusters. Dave and Jim, uh, continue on and we'll give you the exact number in a minute.
3: Okay, do do we want to stop at Elbow or press on? Stop.
1: Follow the checklist just as planned.
3: Just as planned. Okay. Okay. Let's go right up on the ridge line there. I see some debris. Maybe we can get some uh, refreshment in the rim. He's looking down front. Oh, look at this baby climb the hill. Yeah, climbing is about eight clicks. Yeah, man. We've got a good smoke here. About, uh, I'd say, uh, 10 degrees we're going up right now. Oh, i felt it. Did you feel it? Okay, now we're up on the high part, and we're on the... uh we're on the east rim, east rim
5: of uh, Elbow. Stupendous. Yeah, just want to give the folks back home something to look at right here. Okay, we're at our first stop. The drive from the lunar module to the first geology station took about 25 minutes. Turns out they gained back the lost time with the rover deployment due partially to Dave's driving skills. When the rover was parked, the astronauts' activities were broadcast to the world via a color television mounted on the rover's front end. The camera also allowed those at Mission Control in the science operations room to follow the astronauts' progress. Dave and Jim took many photographs and started the exacting task of selecting the best rock samples they could find to illustrate the diversity of this site, with Dave wielding his hammer and Jim holding the bag. The astronauts were soon able to identify basalt, breccia, and some traces of olivine. Again and again they were reminded of the staggering fact that each rock stored away carefully in collection bags attached to their backpacks had been untouched by atmospheric erosion, apparently for the past four and a half billion years. However, the moon has had its own gardening. Its surface has been molded and changed by a great flurry of bombardments from meteors, comets, and other celestial debris. And the astronauts helped the process by kicking over a rock or two. The crew's excitement at each new find was infectious, bringing regular comments of beautiful, attaboy, and stupendous from the backroom guys at mission control. As the astronauts prepared to move on, they rested momentarily to sip water from a tube attached to a small reservoir inside their suits. Fruit sticks stowed in pouches directly below their chins, provided a little sustenance as well. About that time, they got the call from Houston to move on to their next stop.
1: Okay, Dave, we copy the uh, description. We'd like a bag number from that and like for you to move out at your next opportunity, please.
5: But Dave wasn't quite ready to move on. He was determined to pick up a very interesting black rock which he could see not far away, sitting all alone on the gray surface without a speck of dust. Dave resorted to subterfuge. He stopped the rover and pretended to readjust Jim's seatbelt so that he could stoop to pick up the rock. This beautiful rounded piece of scoriaceous basalt was later dubbed the Seatbelt Basalt. As they moved along to their second stop, Geology Station 2 at Mount Hadley Delta, Dave and Jim produced a constant stream of information on every block, rock, and crater, as well as grading the ejecta from all craters as to how fresh it appeared to be. Finally, Houston broke in to ask if the crew could see their old tracks as they looked back, and it turned out they could. The old Hansel and Gretel trick would still work if needed. Okay, we're moving,
3: uh, moving out again at about uh, 7 8 clicks, getting uh, 180. Head up to. Uh, we want about a 225. Yeah. If we could just find. Uh, if we drive along, there are several uh, craters. Three to. Uh, five meters in diameter. There's one out at uh, one o'clock to us now. We have a heading of uh, 215. It looks fairly recent. There are a lot of angular blocks on the rim of it. Uh, another fresh one over there at uh, 11 o'clock. Okay, it's about uh, 20, 25 meters across, and it looks like it's Excavated the bedrock, it had a very blocky ejector blanket, and blocky rims, and ejecta blanket was about halfway out, blocks on the order of about a foot and a half, uh, at the largest, and, uh, some angular, some quite angular. And there's glass at the bottom of that one. Yeah, there sure is. is. Yeah, we're starting a slight, uh, upslope now. Roger. We're heading for, for St. George, I think.
1: Yeah. And Jim, as you look back, can you see the rover tracks?
3: Oh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah we could, John. I saw him when we stopped at the last
1: stop. Okay, good. Sounds like the old Hansel and Gretel trek will work. Thanks. Yeah, man.
3: Okay, You right can try, oh,
5: Made it the highlight at Geology Station 2 near St. George Crater turned out to be Dave Scott finding the most beautiful boulder he had ever seen.
3: This is unreal. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen. There is one boulder. Very angular. Very rough surface texture. Looks like it's partially... Uh, Oh, it's got glass on one side of it with uh, lots of bubbles. And uh, they're about a centimeter across. And uh, one corner of it has got all this glass covering on it. Seems like there's a linear fracture through uh, one side. It almost looks like that might be a contact. It is within the rock. It looks like we have a uh, maybe a breccia on top of a a crystalline rod. It sort of covered the glass. I can't really tell, but I can see a, a definite linear feature through one side of it, which is about a fifth, and uh, the glass covers both sides of what I guess I'm calling a contact, and there's also parallel to that contact one surface which uh, is quite flat, only for about eight inches or so. Looks like it's been uh, chipped off. The boulder itself is on the order of about uh, a meter across and a meter across, and maybe, uh, gee, it looks like a half-meter thick or so. It looks fairly recent, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, It sure does. It sure does, and I can see underneath the upslope side, whereas on the downslope side, it's piled up. Boy, that is really something. Hey, let's get some good pictures of that before we uh, disturb it too much.
1: Oh, on you and the boulder on the TV. And it uh, probably is fresh,
3: probably not older okay. than three and a half billion years. Can you imagine that, Joe? Here sits this rock, and it's been here since before creatures roamed the sea on all the earth.
5: Dave and Jim took the direct route back because they had already used up almost four of the seven hours of the first EVA and if they did not hurry back to the lunar module, they would not have time to deploy the ALSEP. The astronauts did see a neat place to go down into the reel on the way back, but Houston didn't want them to take that option. Okay,
3: here we go. it again. Okay, we'll try and get home of the They have system here. Oh, look at that big, fresh one in the side of the rim he got stereo at right. it. Got to make, uh... maybe oh, we got down, down. slope too much. I'm not. I'm going to yeah. slow. Let's head back over here. Yeah. Easy does it. Looks like it takes us right back, uh, the way we came, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah that's, that's the closest way. We're going to have to go, uh to the right to go around elbow. Oh, yeah, I was suggesting we could go to the left, but I guess we don't want to do that. I don't think we're going to try say <laughs> that That's a neat place down into the rill, isn't it? Uh,
1: Roger, Dave, and Jim, r- we'd rather you do not take that option.
3: <laughs> okay, and if anybody ever comes back, Joe, and wants to go down into the rail, have them come talk to us because there's a good place to do it here. Roger, we'll suggest that.
5: The crew did not realize how high they had climbed until they looked back. Then they tore down the hill, getting back into the Grand Prix mood again. Just before they hit level, or almost level ground, Dave turned sharply. The four wheels locked and dug in. The rear end broke away and around they went. They had done a 180-degree reverse spin. Then they crossed their old tracks. It gave Jim a curious feeling. He knew how Robinson Crusoe felt when he saw footprints on the beach. Dave drove over the last knoll and found the parking position by the equipment bay the crew's own little parking lot by their own little campsite. No competition at all. Scott and Irwin had logged more than six miles in a four-hour Saturday afternoon ride in the rover. Okay, we're uh,
3: moving at about five clicks. And the slope, I guess about six, six or seven degrees, and we're going cross-slope. we mm-hmm. to go down this way. Yeah, we better go down to... Yeah, it's not quite steep. I didn't realize we'd gone up so high. Oh, looking back, man, we we really climbed it. Okay, we're moving downslope now. Come back up here. Yeah, we know our tracks are to the right of us. Yeah, we're in good shape. Heading right toward Mount Hadley. Roger, Dave,
1: uh, any idea of, uh, whether you can see the limb or not? Well, Joe, I took a look when we were back up there and I couldn't see it. Roger. Sounds reasonable. And if you, uh, you cross over rover tracks, uh, Dave, we'd like a depth estimation of them, please. <laughs>
3: okay. I hope we do, Joe. Hang on. Whoa, hang on. Oh, mercy, yes. Don't <laughs> go easy, John Hill, huh? I, I'd say so. <laughs> it's uphill from here on in. <laughs> That's what you think, Joe. There's a hill. We have to climb here. It just... it can't go fast downhill in this thing because if you try and turn with the front wheels locked up like that, they, they dig in and the rear end breaks away, and uh, around you go, and we just did a 180. Uh, Dave, tell Jim it must
1: be that uh, p- powdered material on the slope there.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we just did a Christie. Okay, we're down. It's uh, fairly level now. We're going to start... Uh, Upslope, but we're on uh, just about on the uh, the south rim of Elbow. Roger. <laughs>
1: what a ride, Jim. That's probably the first Chris that you've ever managed.
5: Yeah, I'm kind of... <laughs> just sitting still, huh? Back at the lunar module, the crew of Apollo 15 had another two hours' work ahead of them before they could rest. As soon as the cables were straightened out for TV coverage and the gear unloaded, it was time to deploy the ALSEP or the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package. This was a complex series of scientific experiments similar to what was deployed on Apollos 11, 12, and 14. Unfortunately, this would prove to be the toughest job of the day. What should have been a relatively easy exercise turned into an exhausting and painful chore. The most difficult aspect involved using a battery-powered drill to bore 2 10-foot holes into the lunar crust, extracting the soil and then inserting a pair of thermometers aimed at measuring subsurface temperatures to determine the heat flow of the upper lunar surface. When Scott bore down on the jackhammer mechanism, it seemed something was preventing the drill bit from penetrating the crust to any great depth. I tell you one thing, the base at Hadley is firm. Boy, that's really tough rock, Scott muttered almost under his breath. As the soft upper regolith gave way to much firmer material.
3: Okay, uh, I got the same problem on the chuck, and I think the the uh, rock is so tough that the uh, chuck bites into the uh, core stem and uh, just won't release it without that vice. Roger, Dave, we copy. and uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have trouble getting the vise off of this other piece here.
5: After boring down to five and a half feet, Scott simply had to stop. In addition to the firmness of the material, there seemed to be a serious problem with the drill. After consultation with Mission Control, it was decided that Scott would return to complete the task the next day. By the time Scott climbed back inside the Falcon that night and pulled off his gloves, the force of his fingertips pushing against the inside of the gloves as he applied force to the drill had made his hands swollen and painful, and blood vessels under several of his fingernails had burst. Part of the reason was that Jim and Dave had both laced the inner sleeves of their spacesuits to a length which made their... Gloves fit snugly when their arms were flexed. This gave them a greater degree of dexterity and comfort when they were collecting samples and working in close with their geological tools. But it was pretty uncomfortable when they had to exert any degree of pressure as Scott had to do with the drill. Jim was also suffering from slight ill effects He had had a problem with his water pouch and had gone too long without quenching his thirst. He had a throbbing headache and seemed very tired. However, there was no time to dwell on such minor discomforts. Before the crew could rest, they had to struggle out of their spacesuits, which by that time were heavily soiled with fine-grained lunar soil. To prevent this dark grain and dust getting everywhere inside the limb, the crew stood in large cloth bags and sealed them up until the next morning. The strong odor of this fine, soot-like dust surprised both Dave and Jim. The moon turned out to have a slightly metallic smell, almost like gunpowder. The smell pervaded the lunar module for the remainder of the trip. After eating their cold, reconstituted supper, the crew prepared themselves for some much-needed sleep. The next day, Dave and Jim were due to drive to the eastern flank of Mount Hadley Delta. What they would find at just that one site would secure the mission a unique place in the history books. ations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 345 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, the Lunar Rover, and Traverse 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on August 27th. Sorry I ran so long on this episode, I will try to move things along now. If you are new to the podcast, what I'm trying to accomplish here is a timeline approach to the exploration of space. I began in ancient times, and now I have reached the year 1971. I try to cover the most significant space missions of each year, which includes manned and unmanned missions from all countries in the world, Up to this point, that has been mainly the United States and the Soviet Union, but we have covered other countries as well. Something else to be aware of, if you're listening on the main feed of the podcast, you will not see all the episodes. I have the first 173 episodes available on the Archive podcast. To find them, search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like a better copy of those archive episodes as they were originally released with all the afterthoughts, they are available for download on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Okay, I had a couple of afterthoughts here on this episode. If you did your homework last week, you probably understood that lunar rover deployment better than just hearing the description. Now, of course, the longer videos that show the astronauts manipulating the ropes and the reels, give a more accurate demonstration on everything that is involved in taking that rover off the lunar module and setting it up. Anyway, it took longer than expected, and there were a couple of problems. The main one was no steering on the front wheels, which, as you heard, could cause a 180-degree spin-out, if you're not careful. (laughs) In general, It seemed to me that Jim Irwin was more cautious about the rover. Now, I have a theory. That is probably because he was the passenger and Dave was the driver. I kind of imagine it like when I'm driving Mrs. SRH around in the truck and I sling her around a bit too much and she begins to grab onto the handles and sometimes tries to press the brake pedal that doesn't exist on the passenger side. (laughs) Anyway, that's just how I imagine it, Jim up there. (laughs) Now, to truly appreciate Traverse 1, you need to see the Traverse map. This map will answer many questions you may have. Now, I have included the map with the episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. So, your homework this week dare I give a second assignment, (laughs) is to go look at the map. It may take you 60 seconds to go to the homepage and click on the map, but you will get a much better understanding of the episode if you do. So check that out at the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Okay, one last thing I thought was kind of strange. In Dave Scott's book, he said, and I included in the episode, that he and Jim were surprised about the gunpowder smell of their moon suits once they got back inside the limb. Now, I wonder if that was just artistic license or what, because all three past crews mentioned the smell. You know Jim and Dave had to talk to the earlier crews. Don't you think Shepard would have at least said something about the smell? So it's hard to believe they would not be expecting that. Of course, that's just a minor point. Moving on. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven and one half years, we have been entirely listener supported. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions and I would like to thank DB from Maryland who donated at the shuttle level and earned a moon emoji. Mark N. from Florida donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Bob F. from Massachusetts donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Stephen M. from California donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. Kyle N. donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. Ralph P. donated at the Sputnik level. Miriam S. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. And Jim D. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors has reached 249. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 377 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
6: Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. You know, I got a kick out of watching the video about the rover. It must have been really cool to drive it on the moon. Now, for the winner of our drawing, remember you will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet or two coasters or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or the new SRH Archive Magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jaco Dinar. Jaco Dinar, if you would email us, Mike, at Spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 377 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. Now here's the baby update. Well, folks, I have missed the mark on all my attempts at predicting when our first granddaughter will make her appearance. You can imagine every time there's a call or text, we all jump a little in anticipation. But, you know, I am very thankful and happy to report all looks good so far, and it's just a waiting game for now. Thank you so much for your prayers and support. And well wishes.
5: My sources for this episode were NASA. Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth, An Apollo 15 Astronaut's Journey to the Moon by Al Worden, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, The Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 346 posted by Thursday. August 27th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.